I'm Rick O'Shea and welcome to another chapter of The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1. Uh, it's been a week in which the reading continues for me, which is uh, fantastic. I think I've finally broken the reader's block. Uh, finished up this week and if you haven't had a chance to read it, uh, Eleanor Fitzsimons' biography of E. Nesbitt, the children's author, wrote The Railway Children uh, amongst many other wonderful books for children. I'll be honest with you, I completely went by the books of E. Nesbitt when I was a kid. I was an Enid Blyton obsessive, so she wasn't part of my world. Uh, but the uh, biography that Eleanor Fitzsimons has written about it is just wonderful. And her and the Fabian Society in London in the latter part of the 19th century and hanging around with H.G. Uh, Wells and her uh, time with George Bernard Shaw, well worth your time. I've also started uh, this week and I am flying through, despite the fact that it's so huge, the new David Mitchell book, which is called Utopia Avenue. Love David Mitchell, love his work. I think this is going to be absolutely stellar. But again, I'm about a third of the way through uh, on that. Now, when it comes to birthday celebrations under lockdown, they have been necessarily muted. I can speak from personal experience, but it's more of a pain if said birthday is a significant one, as my first guest experienced recently. But he, like we all do, improvised, bringing, would you believe, his own pint to his preferred pub. It was shuttered and closed and he stood outside and marked the occasion as best that he could. The pub was the Oxford Bar in Edinburgh, a place that will be familiar to anybody who's spent time in the company of Inspector John Rebus for what has been 22 novels so far. It's a place that echoes with stories still to be told by who else but Ian Rankin. Ian, thanks for joining us on the programme. Oh, and happy birthday to you. Uh, thank you. Uh, even a couple of weeks out, that's it. And, and to yourself, although I, I wished it to you on the day. Um, how was your pint on your birthday? Um, it wasn't quite a pint. It was a 330 mil can of Brewdog, because uh, that was what I had in the house. I took my special Rebus pint glass that had been made to celebrate 20 years of Rebus and stuffed them both into the pockets of my jacket, walked down completely empty city streets. Uh, it's about a 20 minute walk from my flat to the Oxford Bar. Lovely sunny day, nobody on the street at all, no traffic, stood outside, opened the can, poured it, drank it, and then walked home briskly before the police could stop me for being too far away from my home. Not necessarily the major social experience one would want to have for a, for a major birthday. But um, tell me a little bit maybe actually about, about where you are at the moment because you, you've downsized recently. Was that a traumatic experience for you? Well, my wife was saying recently she wishes we were still in the big house with a big garden. Um, we moved it from a, a, a large house with lots of rooms so we could always find a wee bit of space away from one another uh, to a three-bedroom flat in what used to be a hospital. In fact, it was obstetrics and gynaecology is our, um, our flat. Um, and it looks over lovely parkland in central Edinburgh called the Meadows. Uh, but I don't use that much during the lockdown because it is insanely busy. Lots of joggers, lots of cyclists, lots of families going around. Whereas if you walk the opposite direction and go down the city streets and into the, the very heart of the city, completely dead, completely empty. And I, I love that glorious emptiness to it. Um, so, yeah, I'm, so what I'm doing is we had two, we bought two flats, one for living in and one for me to work in. So I'm in the teeny tiny flat at the moment. It's a one bedroom. There's a teeny tiny little kitchenette. And I'm sitting in what would be the living room. Um, so there's windows off to one side. There's a desk which faces a wall so that I'm not staring at the view. When I'm sitting at the desk, I'm actually working. And I've got bookcases, uh, a sofa, which I'm actually sitting on, uh, and a music centre. And that's it. 
Well, maybe tell us just a little bit about that workspace that you, you've described around us. You said you, you've got bookshelves there. So what, what surrounds you on the bookshelves in your workspace? Well, it's cheating a little bit because in my home are all the lovely books I've collected, signed first editions, people have signed books to me, all my favourite novels and things that I've read. But this being my office, it's really my own work. So it's just, I mean, it's like being in the middle of my own ego. Um, I've got one Billy bookcase, um, that fantastic IKEA purchase that half of Northern Ireland probably wouldn't because of the name. And I've got lots of them. And um, this one is specifically full of foreign editions of my books. When we were downsizing, a lot of stuff had to go. Um, but I kept one copy of each edition of each book in every language. And that's many, many hundreds of books. So they're all kind of crammed into bookshelves. Books from in Greek and Polish, Croatian, Turkish, Swedish, Thai. I can see just looking here, Danish, Finnish. Um, next to that is the music centre. It's just a wee CD player and a bunch of CDs and a couple of wee speakers. Some framed pictures above that. There's a Snipcock and Tweet, which is a cartoon about book selling that's in the uh, Private Eye magazine. And they mentioned me one time, so my publisher bought it as a present for me. That's lovely. So that sits above my hi-fi. There's the work desk, which is an old trestle table that my wife and I bought when we were first married in London in 1986. I remember schlepping it back to Tottenham on the tube from the centre of London. Um, and that's gone with me everywhere. That's been when we moved to France, it went to France, and we came back to Edinburgh, and it's been in every home in Edinburgh. So that's a kind of lucky desk, I guess. Almost every book I've ever written is on that desk. And right now it's got a laptop or a personal computer, whatever you call them these days. A bunch of checkbooks, because I still don't do internet banking. I like to use checkbooks. And then more bookshelves, and these are mostly copies of my books in English and some of my favourite books. So... Julie Cooper's in there, Jacqueline Hyde is in there, a signed James Elroy, Middlemarch. I think I've only got Middlemarch because my father-in-law, my late father-in-law, who was a professor of English at Queen's in Belfast, wrote the introduction to it. Bleak House, one of my favourites, and all 12 volumes of Anthony Paul's The Dance to the Music of Time, which I'm rereading at the moment. I'm on volume one, two, three, four, five. I'm on volume six at the moment. That's, what, that's my comfort reading during the lockdown. And then if you walk around from that, it's just a little kitchenette and the, drawer, the drawers and the cupboards are full of paperwork. Uh, no utensils, no, no crockery, just folders, files, pensions, money stuff. Um, oh, some lovely whiskey, actually. There's a cupboard full of whiskey there. Um, let's avoid that. And then I'm back to the sofa and I can lie on the sofa and I can read and muse and think. And then when I'm ready, it's two steps to the office chair and the desk because the room itself is about, I would say, probably two metres. It's probably two metres wide, so it's nice for social distancing. Um, and it's about double that in length. It's a long, narrow, longish, narrowish room. But that's fine. I don't feel cramped. It's just nice enough. Do you listen to music while you work or do you, do you use it just to get you in the right frame of mind? I know, I've got, always got music playing while I've been writing, so just recently I'm looking at the top here. I've got um, Brian Eno Music for Installations, which is a six-disc ambient set, and mostly I've been listening to disc one, which is music from installations, uh, and that's about an hour long. I've got Ricochet by Tangerine Dream. Ricochet, there you go, by Tangerine Dream, not spelt the same way as you, though, which is just one piece of music, 40 minutes long. Stick that and repeat. Lovely. It's a fine piece of Robin music, Guthrie. too. Robin Guthrie. 
Robin Guthrie used to be in um, the Cocteau Twins. He started doing ambient stuff. It's mostly instrumental and ambient. Uh, Boards of Canada is another one. Electronica, ambient, a little bit of jazz, a little bit of classical. Nothing with words, nothing with lyrics, because this is creating a kind of soundtrack or a bubble in which I can create a little world um, as I write. Uh, I wanted to ask you maybe really briefly Muriel Spark features heavily uh, you, you have a poster of, of her centenary exhibition uh, on the wall and she was a kind of fairly crucial influence on, on you and your career She well yes for all kinds of different uh, reasons I mean when I left university um, I didn't like the outside world so I begged them to let me back to do a PhD and I was going to do an American novelist called Thomas Pynchon who I was a big fan of and they said well you won't get funding to sit in a Scottish university doing a thesis on an American author. I said, well, who would I get funding to do? And they said, well, there's not much on Muriel Spark. And I went, what, Miss Jean Brodie? They went, yeah, but she's written about 25 other books. Go away and read some of them. So I went and read some of them, and I thought, yeah, this is fine. This is great. Did my um, proposal, got accepted, and then thought, what would Muriel want, God bless her? I never haven't met her. What would she want? Would she want me to sit and do a PhD haven't been funded for three years, or would she want me to use that time to try and become a writer myself? So the three years of funding to do the PhD became my seed money, during which time I wrote my first three novels. Uh, first one never published, second one picked up by a very small press in Edinburgh, that was called The Flood, it wasn't a crime novel, and the third one was the first Rebus book, Knots and Crosses. So by the time the money ran out and I was kicked out, having done the three years, um, but never unfinished the thesis. I had a publishing deal in London for the first Rebus novel. But I loved their books. I loved how complex they were, how playful they were. Um, they're almost like Tardises. They're skinny books, but there's a lot going on in them. So I've been a fan of hers, and I did open the Muriel Spark Centenary exhibition, and that's the poster from it that sits above my desk. And I met her once, and I've got a lovely photograph of the two of us, me, real fanboy, sitting with her at the Edinburgh Book Festival um, with a big bag of first editions that I wanted her to sign. She was very fatigued, so I, I just plucked out Miss Jean Brodie and got her to sign that for me. And then a few years ago, my wife, there was an auction of her... Her son had died and left all his, um, you know, his, the, the stuff from his, his flat. And it was her parents' flat that, that he lived in uh, throughout his life. And there was a little occasional table for sale at this auction. And she visited her parents in Edinburgh uh, when she was starting to write Miss Jean Brodie and wrote some of it by hand in their flat. And the only possible table that was available to her was this little occasional table. So my wife bought it for me as a surprise present. And that sits in my music room. I've got two rooms here, Rick. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, lucky. The living room, which is my office, and then the room next door, which would be the bedroom, which is now my proper listening room with the big hi-fi and all the vinyl. And that's where my little Muriel Spark table sits. Thanks a million for taking the time out to talk to us today and for, for giving us your visual postcard of uh, your workspace. Ian Rankin, it's always a pleasure. Thanks, my friend. Thanks, Rick. Ian Rankin there talking to me from Edinburgh and the 23rd Rebus book, A Song for the Dark Times, will be out in October. Now it's time for Stephanie Preisner with this week's book news. Stephanie, what have you got for us? So I thought I would start by telling you about a book that I've just finished and really enjoyed. It's out in June and it's by Caroline O'Donoghue. It's called Scenes of a Graphic Nature. Did you read her first one, Promising Young Women? No, I, I haven't, but I do have this. And again, this is one of those books that's been sitting on my shelf for the last eight weeks, nine weeks, staring out at me going, you have to read me now, you have to read me now. So this is one that's definitely for the read over the next while. Did you enjoy it? 
I really enjoyed it. It was one of those books where I read the first few chapters and I was like, yeah, I know what this is and I'm enjoying it. And then it was like rug pulled from under me and I was like, ooh, genre bending. So if you like having the rug pulled from under you, definitely give it a read. Who doesn't? Uh, the Nation has a new Laureate Nanogue this week as well. Yes, Anya Glynn was announced on Wednesday. So she's the sixth Laureate Nanogue um, Children's Literature Laureate and the first one who exclusively writes in Irish. Uh, she's written like 30 books, including poetry collections and novels for children and teenagers. And she teaches as well, I think, in the School of Language, Literacy and Early Childhood Education and in Fionter August School Nagoelga, which are both in DCU. OK, there are lots of other things uh, happening this week, including awards and one you can catch from home next week uh, that involves me. Yes, the KPMG Children's Books Ireland Award Ceremony, which is on this Tuesday, the 19th of May at 12 noon. You can watch it on their YouTube channel. Have you, are you going to like get your tuxedo out and sit it, in your kitchen? It's not quite tuxes, however, it is. I, I like doing firsts. I like something I've never tried before. It will be the first time I've ever presented an entire award ceremony from my kitchen. And uh, I'm fine with that. It, it saves the travel. It saves having to leave the house. It works well. Are you going to get fully dressed up? Or are you only going to dress from the waist up? Yeah, like everybody else, I'll be formally dressed uh, from the waist up, obviously. And then I'll be just, you know, wearing docks and jeans below. I want a photograph of both halves of you. And if you want to watch Rick in his kitchen, half formally dressed and half informally dressed, you can watch that on childrensbooksireland.ie. I'm a huge fan of the wonderful Haruki Murakami, but I did not know what you're about to tell us about, that he has his own lockdown radio show coming. Yes. So he's kind of seen in Japan as a bit of a recluse, but he is uh, due to play some tunes and answer listener questions in a two hour show to air nationwide in Japan next Friday, the 22nd of May. But like you'll have to be able to speak Japanese. Do you speak Japanese? I'm perfectly happy to listen to him talking in Japanese without me understanding anything other than the word arigato. That's all I've got. But that's fine. I'm OK with that. So it's like a stay at home special, right? And he said that he's hoping that the power of music can do a little to blow away some of the corona related blues that have been piling up because Japan are in a state of emergency until the end of May. Okay, that sounds fantastic. Tell me a little bit, uh, putting my personal bias aside, about Klopp actually. Well, I don't know about your personal bias, so I'm obsessed with this man. <laughs> I'm actually in love with him. But Klopp actually. So they, I've been following this on Twitter for a while. It's an imaginary diary about being married to the Liverpool manager, Jurgen Klopp. I think, well, I know a lot of me and my girlfriends have had this imagination this dream that we've had so we've been following it it's been written by a comedian laura lex and it's got like 5.6 million views on twitter but now it's uh, going to be published as a book it imagines what it would be like to be uh, married to jürgen klopp and how his imaginary wife navigates the stresses and anxieties of day-to-day life from like job interviews in ikea or making a birthday cake for their daughter who's called clip which i absolutely love um i don't know i just really fancy Jurgen klopp i know are you a liverpool fan uh lifelong yeah sadly for my sins all right i don't know anything about football but like i just love him and the german in me just really is attracted to the german in him and the no-nonsense approach to the world i just listen to him speaking all day i'm perfectly willing to engage with that fantasy as well finally the harry potter verse goes on and on and on and on and on do I sense an air of, like, cynicism in your voice? Not not even slightly. I think I was just happy after the uh, original series of books ended and I engaged with the first couple after that. And, I, and now I'm at the stage where I, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to move on. 
Oh, I'm not. Like, I listen to Harry Potter every night being read to me by Stephen Fry. So I was incredibly excited when I realised that they're reading Harry Potter, book one, Philosopher's Stone or Sorcerer's Stone, if you're American. And Daniel Radcliffe read the first chapter, but you have other people like Eddie Redmayne. Loads of famous people are going to be reading chapters. You can watch it at harrypotterathome.com. I'm really excited about the whole situation and I hope everyone joins on the bandwagon. Okay, even I'm going to throw an eye over that. Fair enough. Stephanie Preisner, thanks a million for the news and we'll talk to you again same time next week. See you next week. It's time for a book club to come face to face in a manner of speaking with an author. This week, we're going to make like Matt Damon and head to Dockey in County Dublin. Here's Oliver Murphy to tell us more about the club and what they've been reading. Two years ago, my friend Bobby and I were, well, I won't say retiring, but semi-retiring. And Bobby asked me and two other friends if we'd form a book club. We were all keen, so we each choose one other friend. So we were eight men, all in our 60s. Another has joined us since, so we're now nine. And we read one book every month. Before COVID, we'd meet in each other's houses, talk about the book, maybe for an hour a bit and then give it a rating, and then we'd break for cheese and wine. We're an interesting bunch from varied walks of life. We seem to get on very well. We have a lot of fun at the book club. And to be honest, the best discussions are when some of us like the book and some don't. Since COVID, we meet on Zoom. And this week, we met to talk about A Paragon by Colin McCann, which gave rise to a great discussion. It says on the cover that it's a novel, And we do only read novels in our club. But we wondered, was it actually a novel? It's about two real men, one Palestinian and the other Jewish, both of whom lost daughters in the Arab-Israeli conflict. During the meeting, Colin McCann himself joined us from New York and we had a wonderful discussion with him where he explained the ideas behind the book. And that made for a very special meeting. Our featured book this week is A Paragon by Colm McCann. We'll be getting to the bottom of that in a second, but it's worth reiterating the book is inspired, as Oliver Murphy said there, by two real-life friends, the bereaved fathers Bassam Aramin, a Palestinian, and Rami Elhanan, an Israeli. The book is divided into a 1,001 individual chapters, and the word a paragon is a mathematical term for an object with an observably infinite number of sides. Uh, enough for me. Colm McCann, how and where are you? I am in the heart of New York City right now. I was away in the woods for a while um, uh, doing doing some writing, but I come back to the city and at seven o'clock every evening, I stick my head out the window along with the rest of New York and we put saucepans out and we bang our saucepans and we shout and we cheer for all the essential workers down at the hospitals. It's quite extraordinary. A Paragon is only out since the end of February and and like some of our other recent guests as well, you've managed to get a book out just before things shut down. It must be a strange experience, though. How have you found that? It was a strange experience. And and on one hand, I feel absolutely meaningless, that that, that, that nothing matters whatsoever. I'm a bunch of molecules just, just slopping around. On the other hand, everything seems to matter. Wearing a mask matters. Staying six feet away matters. Where you go matters. And it feels the same way with a book, because while I thought I had lost it at first, I then got online with all these people uh, through Facebook and through Zoom and, 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 and this sort of book club. And suddenly I was introduced into people's living rooms. It, it's qu- kind of extraordinary, um, intimate, strange and uh, seems to be working out. 
We're going to take some of the questions then from the book club in Dorky so we can maybe get a sense of uh, what happened when you spoke to them. The first up is Padder Nolan. I would like to ask about the genesis of the book. How did you hear about Rami and Bassam and subsequently get to meet them? And was the book intended either as a documentary or a novel at the start? And was it at a specific point that these two aspects evolved into a paragon? I had just written a novel called Transatlantic, uh, which was largely about the Irish peace process. And I was chatting with uh, Senator George Mitchell, who had been special envoy to the Middle East. And he said to me at one stage, well, yes, Ireland was complicated, but you should try the Middle East. And I did. A group of us um, went to Israel and Palestine for two weeks. And it was extraordinary. But I have to say, two nights before the end, uh, on a dark uh, November afternoon, about four o'clock, a rainy afternoon in Beit Jala, a town adjacent to Bethlehem and Jerusalem, I walked up this rickety staircase into a room where these two men sat, Rami El-Hanan and Bassam Aramin. And within half an hour, I was totally, my world was totally turned inside out by the force of their story where they talked about losing their daughters, Abir and Smadar, uh, to the conflict and how they were using the force of their friendship and their force of their grief as a weapon. And so I came back to New York and said I was going to write a novel, but I was still thinking about these two real life men in my head. And the novel really became what I call, call a hybrid novel, which is both fiction and nonfiction melded together, really just a form of storytelling. But I feel that all books are really fiction and nonfiction uh, together, that the real can be imagined and that the imagined can be real. And really what I wanted to do in the end was just to get to the beating sort of searing heart of their incredible story, these two men who traveled the world telling about what had happened to their daughters in order to try and bring about dialogue and peace. The second question then comes from Johnny Greif. Reading at Perignon gives us a wonderful and unique experience of having lived in the Middle East. How do you gain your experiences of this part of the world? I walked and I walked and I walked and I walked and I talked and I met people and, 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 and I was curious. I stayed in the houses of my uh, my characters, quote unquote, Rami and Bassam. I met with their families. I dined with them. They told me things that they'd never told uh, anybody else before in the course of their stories. Things about being in prison, things about being in the army, things about meeting one another. Basically, I seeped myself in the world as much as I possibly could. I felt a little bit like an explorer because I have to acknowledge my own ignorance of uh, the Middle East and that part of the world before I went. I also read so many books and I watched so many documentaries and I listened to people. And the other thing I did, which I think is enormously important for a writer, is that when I wrote it, I sent it to dozens of Palestinians, dozens of Israelis, Writers like Raja Shahade, I was in touch with Asaf Gavron, the Israeli novelist, and they gave me their comments back on what they felt was, was right and what they felt was wrong. And I then I readjusted it and I hope that I have written a balanced book. It was a five-year project, but I have to say it was one of the most extraordinary adventures of my life. The final question uh, maybe plays into a question I'd like to, to ask you as well, because I think one of the major beauties of, of a paragon is its its meanderings, uh, if you will. And this is the final question from Bill Emmett. Why, among the 800 fragments or sides of Epirogan, do 
you include so much extraneous information, such as on François Mitterrand's last meal, the Nagasaki bomb, the origins of May Day, the origins of algebra, and so on. What literary function in the narrative do you see these asides playing? You know, when I was writing the book, I felt like I was writing music. I felt like I was writing a symphony. And if you ask any musician what it's like to go into the studio or to go into the theater to conduct the symphony, you're going in and you're going on gut instinct. You're saying, okay, a little bit more bass here, a little bit of piano here, violin come in there. And that's the way I felt when I was writing this book. It, it, it felt like these uh, fragments came into my imagination and they were informing the music of the stories of Rami and Bassam. In other words, this story happens sort of everywhere, even though it's in Jerusalem. It could be about Belfast. It could be about uh, Kentucky. It could be about L.A. And we're all involved in it. We're all somehow complicit, in particular, when we think uh, about the Middle East, where it's, you know, the meeting point of three major religions, three continents. You know, there's so much energy there. And I think a lot of us, even if we haven't been to that part of the world, a bit of our imagination goes to that part of the world. So for me to make these fragments uh, belong to a wider world, a sort of compendium of human experience was important to me. But the most important thing was to try to get to Rami and Bassam's stories and to make people feel as if they were there. There are some fantastic questions from Doki. Maybe just before we finish, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Paragon is one of the best books of 2020 so far. I hope people get a chance uh, to read it. But from New York, Colin McCann, thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk. Thanks to Colin McCann for fielding those questions from the gentleman of Dawkey County, Dublin. A Paragon has only been out since the end of February. It's definitely one of those books that's going to continue popping up on reading lists all over the country for months and possibly years to come. If your book club would like to take part in a future programme, you can send your details to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for this week's book show on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you find yours. You can also get us on Twitter and Instagram at BookshowRTE. I'll talk to you again next week. As ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop for any of the books featured on this week's programme.